You are listening to DigFin Vox. DigFin is an online media group covering the digital transformation of financial services. Our podcast comes to you twice a month from our base in Hong Kong, Asia's leading financial center, where East meets West and developed markets meet the emerging consumer. Go to our website, www.digfingroup.com, so you don't miss out on our in-depth daily stories on how your clients and competitors are changing their business models across asset management, banking, capital markets, and insurance. Your podcast host is James Lindsay, and this is the voice of tech innovation in finance. This is Digfin Fox. This week on Digfin Vox, we are talking to Henry Arslanian, the fintech and crypto leader for PwC and the chairman of the Fintech Association of Hong Kong. We will, of course, be talking about all things blockchain and crypto. This includes institutionalization and adoption, regulation and policies, exchanges, asset tokenization, ICOs, audit, tax, security, custody, and much, much more. But before we dive right in, here is a great discount for our listeners. Use the discount podcast, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, on our website to get a 15% discount for a subscription to Digfin. This includes unlimited access to our research on fintech use cases, as well as exclusive events with business leaders. Our corporate subscriptions are even cheaper, so drop us a line about those as well. Hello, this is James from Digfin. Uh, welcome back to our podcast, Digfin Vox. I have the pleasure of having today's guest, uh, Henry Arslanian. He is the fintech and crypto leader for Asia at PwC. He's also chairman of the Fintech Association of Hong Kong, uh, and uh, he's probably one of the, the most well-known figures, uh, certainly in this city, uh, when it comes to fintech and crypto, so he probably doesn't actually need any of that introduction, but welcome to the broadcast, Henry. Good. Very excited to be here. Thanks for having me. So today we're going to talk about the crypto landscape, uh, and um, Henry, you, you globetrot. Um, why don't we start off with uh, the institutionalization that's kind of a big theme that's continuing on from last year. Uh, and, you know, we still are talking to people who are working, plugging, plugging away at, at this issue. Um, uh, what, what do you think will be the demand? Um, you know, are institutions still interested? Yeah. No, it's a question, uh, you know, it's a question we get a lot on whether institutional investors are interested and whether institutional players are interested in pro- providing services in the space. Uh, you know, a couple of macro elements happened over the last uh, 12 to 18 months that have uh, probably catalyzed the process. Uh, the first is actually more regulatory clarity. Uh, if you look at some of the major jur- jurisdictions right now around the world, there's increasingly regulatory clarity, which is obviously something that is very important for any institutional player that they want to get involved in the space. I mean, only look at what happened last week with, uh, with the UK. came up pretty interesting rules when mm-hmm. it comes to crypto with different categorization and so on and so forth. Or in other jurisdictions like Hong Kong or in some of the more crypto-specific jurisdictions that you see around the world from Malta and Gibraltar to, uh, to Bermuda and others. Um, so I think the regulatory clarity was a big element uh, from that perspective that provided some comfort. Second is actually, uh, to a certain extent, the uh, industry becoming more institutionalized itself. Uh, for example, what we're seeing right now is a number of the crypto exchanges, for example, are, are putting in place a lot of the best practices that we have been seeing within the traditional financial system uh, mm-hmm. already. So I think as the in- industry is becoming more mature, as you have a lot of the more traditional players, quote-unquote, uh, or individuals enter the space, lead these organizations, we're seeing a lot of these best practices come into play within the ecosystem players. 
A great example of this is if you look at some of the large uh, crypto companies right now, um, a lot of them not only, I mean, they're, they're really uh, bringing individuals from the traditional financial institutions, but also uh, they're really uh, advocating and being actually uh, flag bearers of best practices in the crypto space. So all these elements bringing it together. And the last point is obviously client demand. Uh, if you think about um, about uh, last year, we had a number of uh, family offices have been quite active in the crypto space for some time. Right. But now you're seeing some of the le- levels higher up, uh, especially when it comes to the, for example, the U.S. endowments and the foundations slowly, slowly dipping right. their toes. Sure, I mean, like uh, the Yale endowment, for instance, has already uh, backed right. some projects and so on. Absolutely. And, you know, that's very interesting because when it comes to crypto funds, like you're mentioning, uh, you know, we're seeing kind of the same evolution we've seen with hedge funds in from the early 1990s i was recently reading data that in 1990 there was something only like 30 billion in aum in the hedge fund world globally right uh you know and today if you look at the crypto crypto fund world it's talking between 10 to 15 billion more or less now the hedge fund world is around to, to, i think it's almost three trillion dollars yeah. in aum so many are expecting that same evolution to happen and obviously for all these uh, funds to take place you need service providers to be able to service them and that's when a role a lot of the banks want to play yeah. in this space What's the, but for banks to deal with anything that's blockchain uh, or blockchain-based financial service, uh, you know, I think there's still a hesitancy if there's not a license behind the counterparty. Um, where do you think that licensing regime could could emerge first? Um, you know, is there a particular jurisdiction that you think is is likely to to become the the pioneer in terms of whether it's an exchange or it's at some sort of you know, decentralized financial provider or what what have you? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, Jamie. What do I think what we've seen globally, uh, I like to categorize the crypto regulation and approach to it in three different categories. Uh, in some countries, they've taken a very uh, theoretical, I would say high-level, principle-based approach. Mm-hmm. A great example of this is Liechtenstein, mm-hmm. where uh, literally actually in their regulation, the last uh, consultation they've had, they don't even mention blockchain. They talk about trusted technologies. Mm-hmm. So they really want to be agnostic on a type of uh, decentralized ledger technology or blockchain that you're using. Gibraltar is actually in that camp as well, where the rules are very principle-based. And now, actually, they're coming up with more um, detailed regulation. So that's the first category of theoretical-based. The second uh, group, I would say, is where the regulators are trying to fit the crypto ecosystem in the existing rules that we have in place. Right. A great example is here in Hong Kong, sure. uh, where, you know, the frankly, I believe uh, the rules that we have in Hong Kong since November 1st for crypto funds are probably some of the best in the world, mm-hmm. where you can have any licensed fund manager have up to 10% of its portfolio in crypto with no additional licensing uh, conditions required. You know, obviously you have to notify the SFC, but that's, I think, pretty... And we've seen a number of countries take this approach, whether it's uh, Hong Kong is a good example, and there's many others, like, you know, in that more established camp that have done that, you know. The, the one that's actually more interesting is a third category, which are f- countries, jurisdictions, that are coming up with specific bespoke regulations for crypto. So trying Exam- to be crypto-native. But yeah, crypto-native and crypto-friendly and practically attract them. You know, great examples are here are countries like Malta, uh, you know, uh, Bermuda is another one as well. So there's a number of countries that have been really trying to position and to yeah. catch that wave. And that's no, important for yeah. banks. That, that's important for banks, but also uh, there's no way to say this nicely, but uh, is there a, a country that has an established uh, onshore regulatory process that would not be associated with being a purely offshore money center, a Bermuda or a, a Malta would... Um, you know, there's a reputation of being an offshore center, and apologies to anybody from those places who doesn't like the tone. But you know, it, it's not a it's not a U.S. It's not a France. It's not a Japan. It's not a U.K. or an Australia. You know, if you know what I mean, yeah. it's not it's not where the money's coming from. It's just a 
uh, an offshore center. Um, is, is that going to be, uh, you know, does this come up in terms of what kind of places we're talking about? No, uh, absolutely. I mean, I think the countries that I'm watching for 2019 are actually not those offshore jurisdictions, right. but rather the big onshore one. For example, the, the country I think we should watch this year, uh, you know, there's some countries in Europe, you know, look at France, the ICO regulations they put in place last year. I mean, we'll see if they go through, but they're probably some of the most cutting edge one when it comes to ICOs. Mm-hmm. What the UK did last week with their, their different categorization and the consultation guidance they put out is very interesting. The country personally, I think, has the most potential, if it's done properly, is without any doubt the U.S., uh, for a couple of reasons. Actually, there's a number of bipartisan initiatives going on right now in the U.S., probably the only bipartisan thing <laughs> working out in the U.S. right now uh, that's, that have been put forward. Unfortunately, obviously, because of the recent events, things have been on the on ice. But uh, there's there's a number of initiatives going on in the U.S. from a lobbying perspective and, and other regulatory clarity. And because the U.S. has a lot of advantages, one of them, obviously, a lot of capital is there, uh, as right. you know. But also a lot of the big players are there, from exchanges to funds to service providers. But also something that we often don't talk a lot are banks. Mm. If you think about uh, uh, the, the two probably banks that are banking the majority of the crypto cl- uh, ecosystem globally are based in the U.S. And so there's, there's a lot of these challenges as other countries have that the U.S. doesn't have. So if, at, you know, uh, if the U.S. could get it act together on crypto, I think it could be a very, very powerful jurisdiction. And that would solve some of the, um, let's say, uh, reputational issues right. that you were just raised, yeah. James, on this issue. And what about Japan? Always a quirky one. Uh, obviously, they came out a couple of years ago, perhaps perhaps not appreciating what crypto might actually be. Perhaps they saw it more as a payments uh, gateway, which is actually kind of what, I guess, Bitcoin was originally uh, mm-hmm. meant to meant to be. Um, so you had this massive retail uptake. You still have a high, very high trading volumes Correct. there. Um, uh, but what is that considered... Uh, a friendly jurisdiction? Do you see change there? What's been the lessons? Any lessons that we can get from the Japanese experience? Yeah, it's uh, Japan has been a very interesting because they were definitely pioneering the space. I think they were probably one of the first ones to look at crypto in a, in a serious way before anybody else, uh, other jurisdictions did. Uh, the approach, for example, let's look at the exchanges that Japan has taken recently, is they've taken a more self-regulatory approach where, you know, the, the, there's a dozen or so exchanges in, in Japan, and they actually, uh, that, do, do that group will come up with its own uh, uh, regulations if you want to regulate the space. Because one problem I think a lot of these Japanese exchanges have realized is that you're always as strong as the weakest member of your group. You know? yeah. So if there's a hack in one of the exchanges, uh, all the others are also affected uh, by, by, you know, by affiliation, if you want. But it's not only uh, Japan as well, uh, Jamie. If you look at the cross re- Asia, I'm really impressed by some of the regulations we're seeing across the board. I mean, look at uh, Thailand, some very interesting um, uh, you know, regulations on crypto. Uh, there's obviously some news with, uh, with Malaysia will be coming up with over the next couple of months as well. There's noise about Singapore as well. And so I think Asia has been actually quite a pioneer uh, in regulation, but most importantly, when it comes to best practices. Uh, you know, for example, uh, the, the FinTech Association here in Hong Kong, we published, uh, this is we're up to our second edition now of our best practice document for ICOs, which is a 40, 50-page document where we literally give out our IP on how to do a world-class um, uh, ICO. SIFMA, uh, the Association for the Brokers here, has done one for crypto exchanges. And so I think there's a lot of the, the region um, has taken a lead on a lot of these efforts. And I think it's very good, not only for Asia, but also for the ecosystem globally. Okay. Um, what, why don't we talk about some of the, I, I don't know if you want to consider technologies or the, 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 the types of tokens and, and so on that, that, can, that can be created um, out of the, you know, the, the, the list of utility tokens, securities tokens, uh, 
equity tokens, uh, stable coins, I guess what I, I give them their own category. Um, <clears throat> where, where do you see the use cases likely to emerge? I mean, the only real use case I think that we can really say exists is Bitcoin, and mm -hmm. you can argue whether that's as, a, as, a, as an investment or as a transfer mechanism. But um, uh, what, what do you think will be the, the story that, you know, or yeah. will there be a story that kindles, rekindles interest and, and gets people excited again? Yeah. So it's a good question. I think it really depends um, of the use case of where we are. So obviously, I'm not going to discuss typical traditional blockchain use cases that we all know from traceability to provenance right. and all those. But when it comes to crypto assets, uh, from cryptocurrencies to stable coins, I think it really depends on where we are. For example, I'm personally a big believer in stable coins. I think for them for the next foreseeable future, until one day we have a central bank backed cryptocurrencies, I think stable coins will play a big role. Uh, and I think a greater use cases, let's say, look at cross-border uh, payments, uh, you know, where obviously there's a, the fees are I mean, ridiculously high in many countries. I was uh, just recently in my next book talking about it, how uh, in certain African countries, the, the fee for uh, cross-border payments are almost 18 or 19 percent, I mean, which is frankly ridiculous. Right. you got so, companies like BitPesa that are trying to address that. Yeah. Uh, exactly. Uh, and so I think for a lot of uh, cross-border use cases, I think stable coins will play a big role. But also, if you think about the rise of crypto funds, when you're a portfolio manager and you're managing a, f a crypto fund, when markets become volatile, uh, you know you need a place to park your assets, yeah. and stable coins can be the avenue What's, for that. But there's different collateral relationships or arrangements, uh, different models. Uh, yeah. say, do you have what's what's the model that you think has the the most legs? What what would you look for and to give you you know kind of a What's the five star for version? stable coins? Yeah, for stable coins. Yeah, like as you as you correctly pointed out, there's a number of ways of approaching uh, stable coins, right? So I think the first one is where they it's backed by fiat currencies like right, US dollar, like yeah. yeah. Uh, and then the obviously second one is where it's backed by assets like gold and diamonds, right? And the third one is obviously where it's more, uh, I would say, in the complete since in the crypto space, right? Yeah. Uh, some of the the solutions I've been in the like market, MakerDAO, MakerDAO is the best being the best yeah. example. I think that what's interesting with uh, fiat-based cryptocurrencies, personally, I believe that's where the appetite will be initially. The problem we have with fiat-based cryptocurrencies right now is the trust issue, what we call assurance, where between the, the smart contract and the tokens and proving that the underlying assets are there. Uh, I'm actually very proud to see, uh, I mean, the, uh, over the last thing, six months, we had a number of developments in the space with, uh, uh, you know, in addition to obviously Tether that everybody knows about, but some of the others like G Gemini and the other Paxos that are launched in the U.S., which at least the entities issuing them are regulated. And I, I'm, I'm hoping that over the next couple of months, you'll have some of the large established firms, even like firms like ourselves, will be able to get involved in the space and provide that trust that the ecosystem deserves uh, from that perspective. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think it goes also beyond that on when it comes to stable coins. You know, I think it also depends where you are as a, uh, you know, in countries. We're very lucky in most jurisdictions in the U.S., in Hong Kong, where we trust our central banks and we trust our, uh, our uh, the government. But, I mean, think about the situation in Venezuela right now. I really believe uh, when we're going to look back at what's happening today in Venezuela in a couple of years, uh, it'll be very interesting that we analyze how crypto uh, was adopted or not and the role it played. Uh, you know, uh, I was talking recently to the CEO of, uh, of a large uh, uh, crypto uh, payment system, and they were saying how 50% of their adoption is happening in Venezuela just because the existing right. infrastructure is completely broken. Right. But this is obviously has nothing to do with the, the coin that the Maduro government itself is trying to... Oh, no, no, this is not related to yeah. Petro. This is yeah. obviously yeah. other uh, payment-specific yeah. uh, yeah. uh, yeah. coins that are out there. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned that the, the trust that people need. Um, you know, you work for an auditing company. Yeah. Uh you're a you're a lawyer. You're not an auditor, but tell us a little bit about uh, what what is ha what has to happen for a company to to get through and and receive a big four audit. Uh, yeah. Because in the blockchain space, very few have been able to get that far. 
Um, maybe you can just give us a sense of what we, you know, I assume we'll see more, but, uh, but how hard is it? Because you've got issues around how do you prove the ownership of the of the underlying uh, tokens? You've got you know I guess the technology to verify who who owns what, who has what, how they manage that process. Hot wallets, cold wallets. Um, uh, what's what's on the exchange? What's being shared on exchange? What's OTC? I, I would assume that all of these factors, which Absolutely. you don't have to deal with in a in a classical uh, f- you know context, if you're trying to judge a yeah. judge a financial company. No, it's a good question. It's something, obviously, uh, it's, it's interesting. You know, when we look at our uh, PwC's crypto practice, we have teams now in about 25 different countries. Only here in Hong Kong, with about 40 people, uh, you know, that, that spend their full time or vast majority of their time in crypto. So we offer a broad range of services. Ironically, uh, the one service that uh, until very recently we're not offering is audit, which again, you know, we have tax, legal, governance, control, cybersecurity, pen testing, and so on and so forth. But that was one of the challenges. And you're right, I really believe, again, it's very ironic that some of the issues we're having in the space are its audit, its custody, and so on and so forth. Um, there's a couple of reasons to it. Uh, a part of the issues you mentioned on existence and ownership uh, when it comes to crypto, there's other basic things often that are a challenge. Uh, for example, uh, the uh, one of the biggest ones is all the service provider ecosystem. You know, when you look in the traditional space of, uh, let's say, a normal hedge fund that has a fund administrator, as a custodian, all these service providers are certified with different certification levels that exist globally. You know, we call them SOC 1, SOC 2, which is we, we can trust the controls and the governance methodologies they have in place. Mm-hmm. So uh, for, an, um, uh, for an audit, uh, for an auditor, that's, those are, that's kind of information they can rely on because they know that the controls there are done properly. As you know, in the crypto ecosystem, this is all brand new. Right. right? So these type of uh, control certifications are not there yet. We will get there. And as you can imagine, a lot of the large players are already working on some of these, getting certified and, you know, uh, putting in place the right controls that will give their auditors comfort. But we're not, we're not there yet. Uh, this, then the other stuff as well, for example, uh, you know, we need to be comfortable with their, uh, like you mentioned, the wallet size situation, right? Their, their, uh, their, the cybersecurity, how they're managing hot, cold wallets, the risk, if there's any going concern as a business from a viability perspective as well. So there's a number of these reasons how uh, we're looking at addressing them on the audit side. Personally, I'm... Um, I'm cautiously optimistic that actually not only, I mean, pretty much all the large accounting firms will be in the foreseeable future being able to audit uh, crypto companies. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, a, I'm an eternal optimist uh, in, the, in these things. Uh, but uh, frankly, I think this is a, it's also a two-way road, right? Because um, for a lot of the clients that we work with uh, and we're looking at auditing, obviously you need to have, it takes a lot of time. It's not something that happens over a week, right. but you need to have a really good back and forth that we need to be comfortable with what they have in place and the controls. You know, the other big issue as well, Jamie, is that uh, uh, there's the standards. Yeah. You know, the standard setters, uh, you know, from a regulatory perspective, we're having more and more regulatory clarity. I would even argue that regulators don't get the credit they deserve for the work they've done in the crypto space. In sure. many regards, they're quite advanced. But I think now the challenge we have is on the tax side, on the audit side, on the accounting side, where we need a bit more um, support, let's say, from standard right. setters. But there's also nothing in the crypto world that would be the equivalent of, say, an ISDA contract or a fixed protocol. Correct. Yeah. And we're not, yeah, exactly. So all these standardizations of the industry, I think that's something we need to work on. I mean, to be fair, there's a lot of good initiatives underway. Um, you know, for example, I sit in one of the committees of the GDF, you know, the Global Digital Finance, to try to come up on the custody side, for example, come up mm-hmm. with standards we can all abide with. Um, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic we're going to get there. Uh, the good news is there's a number of, um, I mean, every week there's a number of institutional players are entering the space. I mean, only last week I heard there was, um, you know, two uh, organizations in Switzerland, two banks in Switzerland, now they're entering the space. 
uh, you know, so there's a number of us, these players are getting yeah. more and more. That's right. going to change the game yeah. from that perspective. Yeah, there's been there's a few cutting edge ones. I guess like Falcon Bank has been known to be active Correct. in this space for their clients and stuff like that. Um, I think out of Liechtenstein's too, I think yeah. there's a Correct. firm there. Um, and then Switzerland has a, a pretty proactive regulation. I mean, I think they've they've been promoting blockchain in general. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, last, last thing to talk about maybe is, uh, is the insurance side. Uh, we've talked to firms that are trying to develop insurance versions of, or I guess insurance around custody, um, or using token economics to create uh, insurance within the crypto space itself, uh, you know, sort of uh, the old AIG models of um, uh, you know, more like really uh, providing options. Yeah. Uh, uh, and and then just classical insurance companies that are thinking about how do we, you know, what is this, is there a cyber insurance business here? Yeah. Um, so do we need insurance? Where Where is the where's the most important place where we need to see some progress? Uh, again, um, it's, a, it's a great point because the, you know, if I look at the cross, the, our client base globally, some of the, one of the biggest challenges they have is exactly insurance, you know, probably followed very closely by opening a bank account and custody afterwards. Right. When it comes to insurance, I've been actually surprised how, uh, l- I mean, how difficult it has been to get insurance. Uh, you know, for a number of clients I've been trying, in certain cases, they're able to get coverage, but in those cases, the, the coverage amount is, is is very low, or the premiums are very expensive, uh, which makes it quite difficult then from a business perspective. Right. And this is particularly uh, important when you look at the context. For example, let's take a look at an example here in Hong Kong, where the latest SFC, um, the, 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 theory, the framework for exchanges, actually stipulates that you will need to get an adequate amount of insurance. Uh, what uh, you, you need to get a, you need to get some uh, insurance coverage for your crypto exchange, right. okay. and, and uh, this is important because now these firms have to get it. Right. But the problem is if you can't get it, and it's been very interesting because obviously we've had a number of conversations with insurance players in in, in the space. In many cases, I think it's exactly where the banks were about a year ago, which is in many cases there's there's lack of awareness, uh, lack of also awareness of the of the problem, whether it's a problem or not, and there's insurance demand. Uh, and obviously, then I think it's a lot of the misconceptions or the uh, perceptions that people have of the crypto ecosystem. Mm-hmm. For example, whether it's uh, how how in, how good is the KYC, the AML on these crypto players, how uh, you know the volatility and so on and so forth. You know, so the, I mean, some of these issues are right. there. You can but, see where it would be very difficult to understand how how do I price this risk? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, insurance companies have still have difficulty pricing cyber insurance. I mean, right. let alone crypto. Right. Yeah. So, uh, but again, uh, the the markets I think will take care of this number. I think good. Efforts underway, but unfortunately, we're not there yet. Yeah. Uh, okay. It seems, um, I don't want to get down the road of conspiracy theories, but it does seem that uh, although there are more institutions that are looking to play some role, whether it's, you know, Fidelity offering a custody solution or Nomura or some of these players, um, and yet uh, deliberately or just by or just by happenstance, it, it's so hard for companies in the blockchain space to get just basic financial services so that they can sort of get up and running and do stuff. Um, so, where do we, you know, what what breaks this this Gordian knot, right? I mean, is it just a use case that investors get so excited about that everybody just has to move uh, to meet a big demand, or is there, or is it a regulatory uh, initiative, or, or or something else? Yeah, it's been a challenge. I mean, it's, it's again, once again, it's very ironic that the, some of the biggest challenges that crypto companies are having is dealing with some of the traditional uh, issues. Like, so, opening a bank account is a great example, like right. you mentioned. That is, if I had to go cross our client base globally, that is probably the single biggest difficulty everybody has. Has anyone cracked it? 
Uh, I mean, there's a number of uh, uh, crypto-friendly banks right now globally, you know, some in you know, the U.S., some in Europe, some in the Bahamas, some other places in the world. Uh, but again, for these banks, it's very challenging as well. Uh, you know, it, it's um, one of the big problems for a lot of the banks is they're always worried about the correspondent banking relationships. Mm. So if you're, uh, you're a bank in a country around the world... They don't want to become a credit risk to somebody else. <clears throat> exactly. And they don't want to lose that, cor- that U.S. dollar link that they have, yeah. which is a big issue. Uh, the, the, what I think can tip the balance, and we see that when you look at blockchain, for example, although there's been a lot of POCs and pilots with a lot of banks, uh, frankly, the adoption of blockchain technology has been going actually quite slowly in more ways, more slower than many expected a couple of years ago, where five years ago, everybody, everybody predicted the world would be on blockchain, uh, you know, yeah. by now. Uh, so I think that's one thing that you're seeing a, a lot. I, I really believe the solution for this is, is um, there's a couple of prongs. One is more regulatory clarity, which hopefully we're getting there. Second is the entry of institutional uh, uh, players. What I mean by that is often like they, when the, uh, let's say, crypto fund, let's say there's a couple of billion dollars, wants to trade it, they go to their investment bank and they're looking for services. Uh, generally, when... Uh, entity sees demand from a client and there's an opportunity to make money, it tends to accelerate things. And that's, I think, a big difference with crypto and blockchain. When you look at crypto, for a lot of financial institutions, it's a source of new revenues. It's a top-line element. Uh, However, for blockchain, for many financial organizations, it's it's been a cost reduction. And as you know, for any business, if you're able to increase the top-line, uh, that's op- something that moves way faster than something that may reduce the bottom line. And there's a lot of risk as well. Right. So that's, I think, I'm personally believing crypto may yeah. move faster than a blockchain. That's interesting. Um, also, I guess the challenge with blockchain is that the, the, the real benefit is that it's it's STP at the market level rather than a firm level. But that means, so the, the, the total benefits to the marketplace are huge. Correct. Uh, but you need to get everybody to kind of play. Exactly. Yeah. And that's a good point because it's been, uh, and we've seen this many uh, over and over in def- different use cases. You know, the one, you know, uh, being a lawyer with background and, and uh, especially in my involvement in the fintech community, one that I've been pushing for a long time is KYC utility. Yeah. And I've been amazed that we still don't have that. And yeah. uh, one of the reasons often that comes in practice, many countries have tried this, is that players are not, you know, when you get a couple of banks working together, uh, especially when you have a dominant player that has a majority share, they're not very keen on making it easier for others to... Uh, right. uh, so that's often you have a lot of these um, self-interests always trump the greater good, unfortunately, and that's uh, something we, we, we may see and we are seeing to a certain extent in yeah. blockchain technology. So, but it, it's interesting that that leads, therefore, that you think that crypto adoption will come fa- faster when maybe two years ago it was so fashionable to poo-poo crypto and, yeah. and think that, you know, the blockchain stuff will be what runs. Yes, but I mean, there's still a lot, a lot of challenges. I think there's a, a couple of challenges the crypto ecosystem has to overcome. One of them, frankly, is the maturity of the crypto players. I mean, right. the best example I always give is the the uh, uh, Bitcoin cash fork that happened last November. Right. I think the way the crypto ecosystem dealt with it, basically having... Uh, uh, you know, uh, people tweet it each was, other insults. It was, it was a bun, it was a bun fight uh, among zealots. Yeah, yeah. you know, uh, this is days often the wish that the, the crypto ecosystem was run by women that we we don't have men complaining on who has the longest blockchain. You know, yeah. I think that's one of the things that we are. Uh, I, I think that's the crypto ecosystem one play. The other thing is to be fair, the crypto uh, technology has moved uh, evolved so much. The best example is KYC and AML. I'm often I would love to do a bet where I, I believe a lot of these let's say top 10, 15 exchanges we have globally now have better KYC and better AML, counterterrorism financing, and actually negative news and uh, 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 screening than a lot of the banks. Right. Because they're able to leverage the latest red tech technology on the onboarding side and also on the AML side, as you know with, uh, let's say, Bitcoin, the traceability options that you have are way better than you have with cash. Right. Uh, so I think there's a lot of these misconceptions. People think, oh, Bitcoin yeah. is for uh, drug dealers, yeah. whereas there's so many, I really believe in many cases it's better. Right. Yeah, people see crypto and think, oh, it's hidden or secret, but crypto just means secure. 
yeah, and um, and again, this wasn't it's, the case. It's cryptography, so right? I mean, it's a, yeah. it's a methodology for for privacy. And, and we have traceability with it. Yeah. So if you think about the email checks, I mean, what we're able to do with some of the solutions, for example, we work with it in some that we're building. I mean, I'm very, I mean, I always say if you're a drug dealer, you should not be using Bitcoin. It's not a good tool. Right. And also, if you, frankly, if we look at the market cap of crypto, which is now 120, 130 billion dollars, um, I mean, if you compare that to what the amount of money laundering that happens every year. Uh, I mean, it's not a best tool for that. You're still better off using uh, using cash uh, from that perspective. But I really, I think these are some of the misconceptions that will come with education. Uh, and I think everybody, um, you know, uh, has a duty just to be more educated in the space. Yeah. Uh, so one last question for you, fun one to wrap it up, Henry. Um, there we go. Uh, I think it was a year or two ago and that I, I believe PwC announced that it would be accepting... Uh, Payment in Bitcoin. Yeah. So, has have you received payment in Bitcoins, and is that still uh, is that offer still on the table? Yeah. So we uh, we accepted our first Bitcoin payment. That was uh, more than a year ago. We actually we announced it after we got the payment. So it was not a PR stunt. We actually got paid, and we made, made an announcement. Yeah. It was it was actually very interesting. The reason be for be, be behind that is our purpose as a company is to build trust in society and solve important problems. And if we're helping clients in the crypto space, I think it was the right thing to do to accept crypto. One thing, though, it's interesting on that is uh, I was personally expecting many more clients to pay us in crypto. What happens is a lot of crypto clients, uh, they you know they all want to huddle their crypto, right. and they tell us we'll pay you in fiat money. Uh, we, we, we whatever, we'd rather keep our crypto. We believe it's going to go up, so which is something I didn't expect <laughs> from that perspective. But honestly, I think if we, uh, you know, we, like uh, like we say, you know, we have you have to eat your own dog food. If you're talking about something. Uh, I think it was the right decision for us as a firm uh, in Hong Kong to do that. So, uh, you know, I think very proud of, of PwC Hong Kong to have, to have, for having done that. Great. Well, uh, let us know if you get any more payments in, in, <laughs> uh, in Bitcoin. Maybe that'll be a, a sign uh, for uh, the market to change mood. There's definitely interest. I have to say I'm, I'm, I'm quite optimistic on uh, crypto, uh, ec- on the crypto ecosystem, uh, you know, because not only the new technological ev- 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 innovations we're seeing, but the market interest, the new players, the regulatory clarity, I still think there's challenges, like any new technology, there's challenges. But I remain actually quite optimistic on uh, on the future, not in 2019, but also on the on the medium term as well. Yeah, great. Well, uh, you've been listening to Henry Arslanian uh, from PwC. Henry, thanks for your joining us. On Thank you. Thanks for having me. Great. Thank you for listening. I'm James Lindsay. When I'm not hosting this podcast, I'm the commercial director of Digital. If you enjoyed this podcast, please listen again. Share it on social media so your friends can find it too.